Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Chin. I'm Red. And I'm Miles. This week, Alex chats with Keith Nemitz, seasoned game developer and programmer, and they talk about his entry into game development over the years and his work on games for Macs in particular. Another fascinating entry hearing about like uh, some old days in the Sierra world, uh, porting games over to Macs. So it'll be yeah. a very interesting conversation. Uh, but before we do that, let's get into some news. So Nintendo Online recently added N64 games uh, to the Switch. But they've been not the best release. It's a bit shaky. Just a little bit. I mean, every everything that can go wrong in some way has gone wrong at least a little bit. Input lag frame rate. Button mapping not being optimized for Switch in any way. Low res textures, bad draw distances, fog, no fog. I saw a comparison of original Ocarina of Time versus... Ocarina of Time on the Wii U's emulator versus Ocarina of Time on the Switch's emulator, and it's kind of sad, honestly. I'm actually surprised about Nintendo will mess it up for this time. I mean, they're used to doing yeah. pretty good, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I would have thought that, I mean, for everything else that they released, you would have thought they would be focused a little bit more on yeah. polish. But mm-hmm. Hopefully it'll get there. Yes, hopefully it'll get there. It just seems that that's like, it's been the way for a lot of just different games coming out. You need to wait a couple months for updates to fix what should have been fixed at launch. But it it happens, and it's going to keep happening. Uh, in other news, Pikmin turns 20, and they've been celebrating with a mobile game release. I believe the beta is out now called Pikmin Bloom. I'm not too familiar with how it works out, but it's another mobile game to operate. It's like a Pikmin version of Pokemon Go. I always feel like the the Pikmin series is very underrated by the people, maybe because of the appearance or people just never give it a try. But when you try to play it, it's actually very fun. I love Pikmin. Yeah. The, I played the original one nonstop for a long time. It was one of the most like super extremely peaceful and just a very fun puzzle game mm-hmm. involving little cute coochies. And yeah, a rocket so ship. So Pikmin One came out on the Nintendo GameCube October twenty sixth, two thousand one. Twenty years ago. <laughs> twenty years ago. It's almost old as me. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. That's oh my god. Yeah, I can't believe that it's been that long. I I even remember the house I played that game in. Uh wow. Pikmin, um I'm excited to see what it's gonna be about. Uh I'm probably gonna give that a shot. Maybe we can talk a little bit later about that next week. Uh, but as far as other things served, uh, Terraria and Don't Starve are having a crossover. So or- originally, uh, Terraria was released in 2011. Um, oh, and it has been updated and added to ever since. And I believe very recently the developer said, hey, we're done. The game is finished. There's no more. And then um, a couple days ago, they put a little uh, uh, announcement out that was like, hey, we're doing a thing, and there was a little gif of Don't Starve, and it had the Eye of Cthulhu, one of the first bosses in Terraria. So we're looking <laughs> at potentially more content. In other like little news, uh, a New World server has become a casino. 
uh, kind of in response to uh, a- a post end game of New World, you can go in and uh, check out uh, this other specific server where you enter a trade and you use the dice emoji or die emoji to basically you offer something up and then you both put up the die emoji with whoever you're trying to trade with. Uh, whoever wins that just gets the trade flat out. So a, a gambling server, if you will, for any good items in game. So head over there and check that one out. Alrighty. Well, I think that is all for the news right now. And then we will throw it over to Alex and Keith. So without further ado, here is their conversation. And we're back with Keith Nemitz. How you doing, Keith? Oh, quite well. How are you, Alex? And good. I uh, haven't seen you since last we played D&D, really, so it's uh, good to see you again. Yeah, we need to k- take care of that that awful NPC that you developed long ago. Yes, uh, E-Rake is tormenting us. Uh, I should tell the story of him someday because he is inspired by a good friend of mine who passed on, who would be furious that I made a bard after him. Absolutely furious that I named a bard after him. <laughs> he would have preferred a necromancer. Uh, so, Keith, uh why you you're a very experienced game developer i mean you've been programming for years i mean why don't you tell us how you got started programming um uh that would have been in high school a friend of mine was talking about his little programming in basic using the uh, school district's um deck 10 mainframe uh we had a a 300 baud uh, teletype terminal and later we got i think it was a 1200 baud um uh terminal video terminal so we really were like just cruising at that time that was at school this device yeah that was high school um that was my junior year i think did you were you like sneaking in to find time on the machine or did you have scheduled time or that classes and once i found out that he had taken the first semester class i talked to the teacher and he let me take the second semester class which was fortran so i actually started learning fortran first wow Um, that's actually like a useful language to this day it it is scary, but it, it it has to do with like what is Fortran today? Will it run old <laughs> Fortran code? I'm a little suspicious about that. Um. <laughs> oh, certainly, certainly. But uh, you know, old code never goes away when it's used in a business. Oh man, talk about those poor um, uh, COBOL programmers. Yeah, right. They they get compensated for it these days. I hear. Yeah, they do, and they also made bank during a two thousand to fix all those uh, in uh, uh, end of the millennium uh, bugs. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, how did you end up working pro- as a programmer? Um, well, I got my degree in computer science engineering, and I was hired uh, by Boeing coming out of college. Uh, so I was doing some work in their workstations group where they were the only group in all of Boeing that could sneak Macintoshes into the company uh, because they had a workstation <laughs> license and they could sell them as workstation machines. Uh, and what were they using those for? To design aircraft and things? Or? No, they put them on the desks of every of every person. They had the original, <laughs> I think they were 512 Macs. Uh. And uh, I remember a specific moment where the um, office assistant she says, I don't want a computer. I don't want a computer. They're all big, bulky things. And she set it down on the mess and says, oh, my God, it's just a baby. <laughs> uh, and she had, it was adorable to her after that. And that really helped her, like, overcome the – there's still a learning curve, right? But she really <laughs> was very pleased by this. It shows how far a little – it shows how far a little personality can go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how did you come to work at Apple? 
Um, well, I left Boeing and started working for APPLE Co-op, which was a user group for the Apple II. And they saw declining numbers because the Apple II was fading. Uh, and they tried to get into this Macintosh thing. And they did some stuff with APTA, which was the original Apple developers uh, kind of like um, initiative, trying to bring Macintosh uh, uh, documentation to developers in a, in a cogent way. Um, and that wasn't my in, unfortunately. I just saw an ad in a newspaper saying, like, work for Apple or something <laughs> like that. And I got, a, I got a phone interview, and they brought me down, and we uh, did the full interview at Apple, and I started working on testing MaxBug, which was the low-level debugger for the 68K on those machines. And, and now to test that, you had to, like, trigger into max bugs i mean that was like when things went wrong you could dump into max bugs and see what's going on see what was right in, in memory right oh but yeah like, yeah it was the, it was the perfect hacking tool if you really like playing with uh, bits and bytes but how did you did you have like a tool that could trigger it to, to just bring it up whenever you wanted oh that's easy all you have to do is just cause a, a some kind of typical error um <laughs> and um basically we were running scripts and we were running um some code uh to to trigger it but um, a lot of um, there were you could also do fairly complex instructions into Maxbug um, fan line. Mm -hmm. So you were doing lots of different tests. You could in, in, inject uh, command line test to it. I'm not sure all the details anymore. I mean, you, you say you say scripts there. What what does it mean to script on a Macintosh in 19 you know 80s? I don't even remember AppleScript existing until the early mid 90s. No, no. Um, there was the um, ba iBasic. iBasic. There you go. So you were actually writing these tests at Basic. Sure, but we could also write it in in, in C and and such. It wasn't it wasn't really hard. I mean, most of your work was going to put a lot of text um, strings that were going to send commands to Maxbug. So it really was scripting, yeah. So, uh, so then you came to work on the ResEdit team, right? That's right. Now, ResEdit was a favorite tool of mine. Anybody out there who's a Mac nerd loved ResEdit. What was it like working? That that was a the only sort of uh, development tool that I remember for the Mac that really had a personality to it. I mean, it feels like it was a fun tool to build. Oh, it was because you could basically dive into any of the resources of any application and change them up, take them out, use, reuse them. Uh, it was a terrific tool. Um, and as Mac, Mac apps became more reliant on resources, it became a better tool. Uh, and gosh, that kept being the top tool to play around with for a long time. Some developers would like start encoding um, uh, data into like you know black box uh, resources if they needed to hide stuff. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I remember fishing around in programs, playing like redoing After Dark screensavers with it. I remember pulling images out of games like uh, Chuck Yeager's Air Combat because yeah. I didn't have any clip art, so I was using the pictures of pilots and things like that. I mean, an incredibly useful tool that really opened up the Mac to me as a as a nerd with not a lot of resources or things to play with at the time. Yeah, it was, it was like your local internet. <laughs> it was. Uh, so uh, eventually you, you moved on to games. That's right. Um, I was working at Apple and I went to a, I think it was the second or third game developers conference. <laughs> Wearing the shirt, the associate shirt from 2018. Um, yeah. And uh, that was happening in Milpitas at a Holiday Inn. Really enjoyed the experience. 
I mean, some of the, well, details, are, some of the details are a little blurry, but I may, have, I may have gone there and enjoyed the experience the first time. And then the second time I brought a uh, tool that I wanted to think it was a, it was a tool for game, uh, role-playing game masters uh, where you could create your world, create the system that you wanted. You could define all this stuff and you could run the game from the Macintosh. Um, and I remember some of the people at EA, it was Richard Hilleman saying that, well, this is pretty great, except nobody has computers to run during thing. And laptops really weren't a thing at all at that point. <laughs> so I was kind of ahead of the game on that design. But, you know, I was a game referee. I, went, I wanted that tool, you know. And you, you moved on to actually designing games from there, right? Um, well, that wasn't my in. It was like, I think the following year I went again and we we're just talking uh, at one of the parties and the guy comes up and says, oh, you do Macintosh work. Yeah, yeah. I've been working on Apple a lot while. And he says, would you like a job? <laughs> and that was uh, Stuart Mulder um, out of uh, uh, Sierra Online. Oh. Yep. And, and uh, so I worked at Sierra. Um what the heavy doing? I was doing all the Macintosh ports from like 91 to 92 to 93 or 4. 93 or 4. God, okay. Now you're really testing my memory because I'm trying to think of some games in that period there. It'd probably be like King's Quest 5 or 6. Yeah, we were, we, were, we were cranking out games that were about a year old, actually. And we're trying to catch okay. up with the modern games. But I put mm -hmm. out uh, 10 games in, I think, two two years or 15 games in two years. Jeez, machine. Well, it was a, it was using the interpreter, right? So most of those games were written in an interpreter. We just had to convert the interpreter over and then fix all the bugs that were in the code, the interpreted code, because boy, it's amazing what got through. <laughs> and, and we fixed them, but we had our own set of bugs that we had to deal with too. And, and one was very frightful, which I never caught until like the very end of, uh, I think the Macintosh, period when they're porting games it had to do with the midi driver it was a, a driver that was compiled for the amiga so 68 right but yeah. it didn't have the right uh register saves happening mm -hmm. and so when the mac would uh call it sometimes one of the registers would have garbage in it after <laughs> after the call and so it would just do all sorts of horrible things but tracking it down was a bear um <laughs> And, but you got it before you shipped. No, we couldn't fix the bug. Oh, which well, game was it, this? It had to do with the fact that it was a compiled uh, library. And either oh. I would have to rewrite an entire MIDI driver um, or ship it as is and cross your fingers. That's <laughs> basically what happened. I was like, I found the bug. I told them what the solutions were. We couldn't fix it in any reasonable time. So they shipped the game. And I will always be uh, sad about poor Al because it was his game, Freddy Farkas, Frontier Pharmacist, that seemed oh, to cause the bug the most. I, and I, I always was sad, sad for poor Al about that. I, I played a lot of Freddy Farkas, actually, in my day. Somebody got it in my high school when we passed the discs around. Yeah, that's one of my favorite was, Sierra games. That it it's, a, it's a completely forgotten one. And the whole alchemy kind of thing going on there is so... Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you got to really be a pharmacist. It was also the first game that Josh... Um, was really a, a major contributor to, to that product. So it really kind of changed a lot of the type of humor that you would, you would experience from a typical Al game. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't all just um, boob jokes with Al. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fortunately, um, it was, yeah. 
uh, we, could, we could talk about that in a, in a separate uh, interview if you want to talk to Freddie Farkas. Uh, yeah, no, actually, we should do some kind of deep dive. Maybe we can do a Freddie Farkas reunion because I deeply love that game and the ethos of it. It is just such an out of left field. Yeah. Freddie Farkas, frontier pharmacist, for anyone who is uh, unfamiliar with the game. Spelled with a lot of PHs. Yes, I think that was intentional, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, we actually put an Easter egg on the Mac version because we could. Oh, really? What What is it? Um, it has to do with, like, there was a demo version of the of the game, um, and it used a screen that was not used in the regular game. But you, you could still access it, so you could go to this, just a view of a pond, right? And I had this idea of Excalibur, right? And there's, like, a, a, a voice that speaks to you and says, like, ah, um, you, would you like a Macintosh? And a hand rises a Macintosh out of the water, you know, and says, Oh, I see you already have one and pulls it back down. <laughs> That's great. Uh, how did you get to 3DO? Uh, well, that was uh, later. Um, I, uh, I was like, this is the last uh, of the in industry jobs I had. I left uh, Sierra, mm -hmm. um, I think 93, 94. These are always going to be sketchy numbers um, <clears throat> to work for um, digital pictures which mm. was the people who did Sewer Shark and uh, uh, mm -hmm. um, Fright Night. No, not Fright Night. What was that like? I mean, that's going from sort of day-to-day -day porting to absolute insanity with money coming out of a fire hose. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, so much that I could be saying about that. But I was, uh, I interviewed for the for the, the job and, and they uh, talked about the different types of uh, products they were making. They were doing genre um, uh, full motion video games. Okay, and what the technology would be, would they would like have the, the video encoded, and then as it was decoding, you would apply add sprites to it in real time to react to what the player was doing, you know. And I mentioned one of the fun games that they were working on was uh, Shanghai. It was their martial arts film that was made by the Shaw Brothers, actually filmed by a Shaw Brothers company, um, and uh, just your very classic, straightforward kung fu movie um, out of China with Chinese actors and Chinese martial arts. Um, and I said, oh, really, I'd love to work on something like that. And so I ended up working on a football game. <laughs> I, had to, I had to ask the, the uh, area associate, it's like, what's a two-point conversion? <laughs> I didn't I know football. Say, like, like, you don't, you're not a big sports guy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you're like a much, much bigger board gamer. Um, so I wanted to talk about I, I know our, our, we've already sort of run through a lot of your, your past career, but I want to talk about your stuff with Mouse Chief and your own games, because that's, you know, I think, you know, far more exciting because, you know, you design these things. So like uh, Dangerous High School Girls in Trouble, Seven Grand Steps. Uh, what, what, what are you thinking looking back on, you know, it's almost been, what, 20 years of being an independent game developer? Almost, right? yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that journey? There's not a lot of people who have the ability to have that much of a career of, as an indie developer behind them. I'm interested. To well, I took so long to make games that I didn't make that many as you might, because uh, I was highly, highly resource constrained. And also I, I have a penchant for doing narrative games, which entail a lot of writing. And I can say for like seven grand steps, two of those years was just writing. Mm -hmm. The game was working. All I just needed to do is just fill the content. And there was a massive need for content in order to get the experience that I wanted. Because if you, played through it once, you'd get to see about 
eh, roughly a third of the content. And you could play it again, you'd see roughly a half at that point. You know, so there was enough there to make you want to play it a few times. Um, and I, it gave you this sense of like, yeah, my choices are meaningful. You know, the different tracks and the different professions that you choose all kind of like give you little bits of the of the of the full content. Um, and uh, that's why it took that's why those games took so long to make. But I'm going to I'm going to catch up and say that after digital pictures, which the fire hose got shut off rather rudely by acclaim. Um, they <laughs> yeah. basically said, no, we're not going to fund you anymore. And poof, it was gone. We were all gone the next next week, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was very, very sad. It was the, one of the best companies I ever worked for. I love the people, the staff. I was treated excellently. Um, I was the one who was burning myself up. They never asked yeah. me to come in and do extra hours. I just love doing it. And I really wanted to get, you know, up there and, that was my lesson to actually learn about burnout. <laughs> yeah. So after that, I worked for Stormfront Studios, uh, which just was a contract developer for various things. They did some stuff for EA. They they did like Pool of Radiance something or other. I can't remember. Um, they also did um, a couple of their own games, which did okay. They were pretty good games. Uh, but then I moved. Then after that, I uh, left for Seattle. And while I was in Seattle, I spent three months making my first indie game. And it wasn't a complete game. It was just a demo. But it was um, Flagship Champion, which was a Starship combat game. Uh, that was my first uh, independent game festival nominee. Um, so I was really happy to, to, to... God, that that must have been like Indie Games Fest 1 or 2 or 3 there. That was the... that was No, it was no it was the first one. The first yeah, one. Yeah, 1999. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you go. And I feel so fortunate. I got to meet Andy Schatz. Because he was also there with his his little Africa Safari photograph game, and there's these other uh, game developers that we we were in this little area with our boot with our little kiosks, right? And nobody else, nobody knew mm-hmm. what an indie game was. Nobody mm-hmm. knew why they were, we were there. We just were just hanging out with each other, talking about develop game development. It was one of the important things that happened to me because it kind of like showed me what how important a community was. You know, mm-hmm. so we were the first indie game community, really. It, it's interesting because that era, I don't, you don't see people talk about the games from that era, the indie games from that era. They're just sort of a lost thing. Like even all the way up to Aquaria, even like it, it's it's not until maybe 10, 12 years ago that these indie games, the winner starts to be like a big deal and get publishing deals and actually good. Yes, yeah, Braid was probably the big breakout where that, Braid, where that yeah, people really you. started taking attention. Yeah, but before that, it's just, I mean, it's this unknown world. I mean, people have this view of the indie game scene or whatever, but you're absolutely right. It's a community. It's just a bunch of people who are extremely resource constrained uh, helping each other. Yeah, that was that was an interesting year. I was also picked uh, f- um, for one of my games in that year that Brage shipped, or I'm not sure if they shipped in the year that they showed. <laughs> but uh, I was there yeah. looking across the, the ranks of the various kiosks, talking to people, and never once saw the creator of Braid. Oh, yeah, Jonathan. And, and- he was constantly in meetings. People somehow got he, – he did a fantastic job of getting out um, the the word about, you know, talking about his, his game, and, and, and I, I guess he was looking for deals, publishing deals. But um, – yeah. yeah, and, you know, platforming games are uh, pretty much, like, the soul of the video game industry in terms of, you know, branding and excitement and interest and easy to, easy to communicate, right? So Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you I don't think you've ever made a jump button in a single one of your games, have you? 
a couple demos, but no, no game. A couple demos. So, okay. We've got a few minutes here left. Uh, why don't we talk about dangerous high school girls in trouble? Like you're going to, is that available anywhere? Can I play that right now? Yeah, it's on steam. Uh, on steam. Okay. So it's seven grand steps. So, uh, there'll be a few sales this year. So you might want to look for them. In fact, there's a board game, um, sale that's happening on steam, uh, pretty soon. Uh, and, uh, because technically Dangerous High School Girls in Trouble is a visual, a, a ver- video game version of a board game that it's always been allowed into that. And also Seven Grand Steps, which has a lot of board game style mechanics in it, is mm-hmm. also usually allowed into that, uh, that, that, that sale. So, yeah, you, uh, your games are indeed very board game like that. They, I feel like the mechanics are very, very finely honed, like just perfectly honed as well. Like I, the thing that I consider it to be sort of a hallmark of your game is like, it is every single thing I do matters. There's no throwaway actions. There's no time where I'm like, well, I'll, I'll try this and see what happens and there won't be a repercussion for my actions. There's always a repercussion, especially in Seven Grand Steps. Oh my God, that game comes down to, there is a correct move here. I got to find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of subtlety that I wish I could have explained better in the tutorials or, or the, the documentation. Um, the big thing is always like, keep an eye on what your, what your peers are doing because if you can take advantage of that, you it'll always give you that extra bonus that you need. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just uh, it, you can go and have an interaction with somebody. It's not cheating on your wife in that game. <laughs> 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 Don't feel ashamed to move forward and run around the, the person who's not your your betrothed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, thank you, Keith, so much for being here. Um, let's put a pin in that Freddie Farkas thing. Maybe we could get Al and Josh together. Oh, that podcast. would be so great. That would be awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, can't wait to maybe we'll be playing DD this weekend. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been a really fun time talking. And we're back. Thank you very much, Keith, for uh, joining us on this podcast and uh, chatting with Alex for a little bit and letting us pick your pick your brain and your history. So for the end of this today, we need to hear from you, Miles. Uh, you need to let us know about Metroid Dread. It's finally time. Uh, it's finally time. So, so the floor. I have 100% of the game. It's not, it's not a huge undertaking to 100% a Metroid game. It's a lot of just collectibles that are fairly straightforward to find. The biggest part of the game that's actually challenging is the bosses, uh, particularly the final boss, who is a monster. Very fun boss. Mm. Very, very difficult. The other big thing is the... Uh, slight spoilers uh the shine spark puzzles which is all about conserving movement you know storing momentum and then using it to just burst through a wall that you couldn't normally get through overall it is a hard return to form it is a solid 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 game so is fusion the fusion was the metroid game that was essentially storyline wise right before this one yes i really don't want to get into spoilers for it because it is there is definite story to it and who boy spoilers um but I think the biggest thing about uh, Metroid games in particular is the speedrunning community, which I think is um, very interesting. And I've started to get into it myself. I've started practicing my run. Um, <laughs> uh, I beat I beat the game on normal in just under 12 hours. Okay. I think 11 hours, 40 minutes or something. The current world record is one hour, 25 minutes, 21 seconds. Uh, this is any percent? Any percent. So is this like then you at that point you would have to like glitch through walls and have those 
special range of movement that you is not like shown to you in the game. It's mostly actually just skips. I've I've watched the run and there are one or two glitches that you utilize over and over okay. again because there's one there's one thing where you can shoot through a wall um in in several different places by utilizing this one trick. Everything else is the game just is built for speedrunners. It's made so that you can play it out of sequence so that you can skip bosses so that you can do things if you know what to do. And I think that is a fascinating kind of game. That, yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to yeah. have to look at that as well. That will be... And, you know, they expect you to speedrun it because all of the uh, gameplay rewards, it's not tied to difficulty. It's not tied to completion percentage. It's, com- it's tied to time. So to get uh, all the rewards for it, you need to beat the game in under three hours. Okay. Which is mostly just, you know, art anyway. So it's not a huge deal to not... I think it's the way to go for this kind of game to survive in these days. Just it's a it's a good way to make players to to just keep playing the game instead of just play it once and throw it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some amazing speedrunners that it's it's almost like a Zen state, just like a super meditative state when they're doing speedruns of these games. There, it's just pure focus and they're just all flow. It's some of these pro pro speedrunners, and I I'm sure it's going to be amazing to see. The, the speed run of dread uh, if they had the video of it. Mm-hmm. My reflexes have never been as quick and I've never been able to execute certain speed running tricks that are needed on some games. Sometimes I feel like it's more like your practice and muscle memory than the reflex itself. There's, there's no reactions involved. It's all muscle memory. You just practice it and mm. practice it and practice it until you know what you're doing without thinking about it. Yeah, practice okay. it's perfect. Practice making perfect. Well, thank you very much for getting on the Metroid Dread Train. We may have to touch a little bit more about it next week, but I think that's about all we have time for today. We want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the made afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by patron donors Dana Northrup and Joseph Morita. Thanks so much for your support. Till then, I'm Chun. I'm Miles. I'm Red. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.